Genesis 5, uh, by way of um, a recap of where we've been, Genesis 4 uh, looked specifically at a very dismal record with the, the line of Cain and um, the decay of civilization, starting with Cain, who murdered his brother in cold blood and showed no remorse, uh, no real sense of guilt, only fear of a reprisal. Um, self-pity, uh, but no genuine contrition on his part. And the, de- the decline that we see in Cain's life was simply amplified and continued in his lineage. And we see that in the second part of uh, chapter 4. Cain occupies verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4, and then starting in chapter 4, verse 17 and following, until we get to a very important section at the literally at the end of chapter four, um, we're seeing the the lineage of Cain and uh, the the children that he had, and the sophistication that they brought to culture. But frankly, the lack of spiritual content. It was a totally secular society, and you see the the lineage of that. You see the the impact of that, and then we see this in. in Chapter 4, verse 24, what most commentators have called uh, Lamech's sword song, and a boastful, prideful, vengeful declaration uh, that he would exact vengeance on anyone, and did in fact exact vengeance on anyone that would attack him with virtual impunity, that he would be protected 70 times 7, whereas Cain had the protection of God, Lamech was his own protector. And you see this very self-sufficient, prideful, arrogant attitude on Lamech's part. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, at the end of chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, you see another lineage. You see Adam and Eve bearing another son. And that son's name is Seth. His name means appointed. And Eve looked at this child that she had just born and named him Seth because the Lord had appointed a child to take the place of Abel, who had been murdered. And it was evident that the line through which God would be working was not through Cain. That was painfully obvious at this point. Her aspiration, of course, with Abel was that this is the, or with Cain, pardon me, was that this was the child that God had given to in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And it was, again, evident beyond a shadow of a doubt that that was not the case. Cain was, was cursed of God. And then we turn to this last two verses in chapter 4, and we see Seth being born, um, and we see a new line. And really, you see two lines of humanity in chapter 4, and and this other line will continue in chapter 5. But there is a great ray of hope we see in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 4, because the Scripture says to us in chapter 4, And, to, and, and Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed, that's the, the meaning of Seth's name, appointed uh, me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And then you see these wonderful words, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so you have this new lineage that was being brought into into play. And we made this point last time, but it bears repeating that the promise of God is never frustrated by apparent decline. Uh, 
And so we, we saw with the turning of Cain towards evil uh, that God's plans were not frustrated. And the, the line through Abel, of course, was snuffed out through murder. But God brought another child, Seth, that would continue the godly line and fulfill his promise that there would be a seed of the woman who ultimately would crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman would be bruised. And of course, this looks forward. It's often called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Uh, But it looks forward to the work of Messiah who would suffer greatly and yet would reign victorious over the enemy, over Satan himself. But getting there required a godly line, and that line was not through Cain, that line was through Seth. And then we come to chapter 5, and at the beginning of chapter 5, it begins, this is the book of the generations of Adam. There is an expression there that is not quite so obvious in the English, but the the book of generations, and the Hebrew word is toledot. There's 10 of those expressions, and you'll see that in chapter 2, verse 4. You'll see it at chapter 5, verse 1. You'll see it at chapter 6, verse 9, and then there's several more. And these are literary markers that Moses interjected into the text to say, here's another chapter break. We have English breaks in the chapter text, and yet Moses introduced some literary markers. And if you're reading this in the original language, it stands out very clearly. But this is a book of generations. This is a new line and it's a, a point that the, Moses, the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is talking about another development that needs uh, to, be, uh, to be chronicled. And this is the part, and it goes from chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 8, of the line of Seth. Uh, and the, what will happen is in chapter 4, you see uh, the line of Seth running all the way from Adam uh, to Noah. And uh, the text says Moses, and ultimately that's true, but that's a typo, should say Noah. Um, But what's interesting is if you look at the line of Cain, there are no years that are attached to the names. It just simply recites so-and-so was born, so-and-so was born, and you see a litany of names that were uh, developed in this line of Cain. And, and many commentators will look at this and say and the reason for that is evident because there was no posterity to them. There was no significance to that line. There was no enduring consequence of their line. They extinguished themselves and there was no history to, to chronicle. It's interesting if you look at the line of Seth, on the other hand, it will show, and you, this is at the top of the next page, what you'll see is a list of the names of the descendants, uh, when they are born, at what age the firstborn came along, how many years after uh, the firstborn uh, was uh, brought into the world uh, did the father live, and then the totality of the lifespan. In each case, you'll look at the line of Seth, uh, starting with Adam and running all the way to Noah, and you'll see name after name, and you'll see uh, the age at which that child was born, the number of years following the birth of the firstborn, and then the totality of those years. And, And there's a reason for that. And that is that these, these individuals are all extremely important. Um, and, and so they, they're part of God's redemptive plan. That These are the, the, the men through whom God would ultimately develop uh, his redeeming plan. What's interesting is we look at chapter 5, and, and this is often the case, we'll look at a, a series of genealogies. And I don't know how many times as you've gone through a read through the Bible program, and you've come to a chapter and it deals with genealogies. And if you're like me, sometimes you'll say, okay, and I'll kind of skim through that chapter. You cannot do that in chapter 5. 
You can, but it's, it, it, you're missing the entire point of what is being developed here. Each of those names is very significant, and it, each of them are historically important. Um, this is, uh, Steve Lawson wrote a series of books, a, line, a long line of godly men. That would not be an inappropriate title for what we're reading about today, a long line of godly men, ultimately, at least in chapter 5, culminating in the life of Noah. And so the Lord is chronicling this new line, Cain's line, no consequence, evil, uh, an entirely secular society, a godless society, civilization advanced, but it was devoid of any spiritual content whatsoever, much like the world in which we live today. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce said this, he said, these men and women were pillars of faith in an increasingly godless age. Understand that the line of Seth was, were contemporaries of the line of Cain. So we're not reading about the line of Cain here, but these men who came through the line of Seth were living alongside, at least age-wise, uh, the line of Cain. And so you've got two cultures growing at the same time. And, uh, and so they stood for God with such tenacity, Boyce goes on to say, and in such a way that their names have been preserved for future generations. Well, as we look at chapter 5, and we, we study these, this genealogy, or the line that began with Adam and ultimately culminates in Noah at the end of chapter 5. There's four points that become evident uh, that are worth uh, emphasizing as we work through this chapter. The first, and there are wonderful applications as we go through this, but the first is that the, the legacy of Adam is really in his spiritual heritage. It's in his children that shared his faith You'll remember that when Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to cover themselves unsuccessfully with foliage that they had garnered from the, 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 the trees in the area. And the Lord said, no, that won't suffice. He literally sacrificed an animal and clothed Adam and Eve with the coat of an animal. And there was a, a picture that was given there that life has to be shed, that blood has to be shed because of sin, that there has to be a sacrifice. That was clearly taught uh, from Adam and Eve to their children. Abel took it to heart. Cain did not take it to heart. And you recall that when we saw Cain's offering, that it was not regarded by the Lord. The Lord gave him an opportunity to repent, to do something that would be honoring to him. And, and Cain's countenance fell. And the Lord said, why do your countenance fall? If you do right, it'll, it'll all end up well. He didn't do right. He became headstrong and very arrogant in, in his disposition. He became angry at God and ultimately took his anger out on his, on his dear brother, his innocent brother, Abel. Abel's sacrifice, on the other hand, was regarded in, in a righteous way by God because it was exactly what mom and dad had taught him, that it had to be a sacrifice. It couldn't just be the fruit of the earth that was brought forth. Anything that you've got handy, bring it forth from the fruit of the ground. No, Abel took the, first, the, the, the firstlings of the flock, a, a very significant offering that he brought, and life was shed as an offering, and, and the Lord said he declared him righteous. Hebrews 11 tells us that the Lord declared Abel righteous. He accepted that sacrifice. Abel learned that from, uh, from Adam and Eve. He learned it from mom and dad. And the point that is going to be evident as we go through this is that Adam's legacy is really a, a continuity of faith. And the application is that that's true of each of us as well, that if you want to know what really will endure in your life, it will be in the lives of those who are closest to you, in your own lineage, in your own children. 
and those whom you spend time with and those who you transmit the faith and, and you look at what's happening in their lives. It's those with whom you share the gospel who were introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's those that you have an impact on for Christ. That's your lineage, and it doesn't stop at your death. It continues. That's exactly what took place in Adam. That's the, the example that, that we draw for all of us, that our lineage really matters. It does, if we happen to be single, then it's, it's a matter of who are we discipling, who are we shaping, who are we investing our lives in to show that they, what it means to be walking with the Lord, as we'll see with Enoch, walking with the Lord. And if we're married, then the question is, how are we investing in the lives of our children? Are we teaching them things of God? Are we instilling in them what they need to know that will honor God, what will please God? That's the mandate that we all have. And so we see this legacy, and it begins with this generation, this toledot, this, this marker. And we see that this primary legacy of Adam is exactly in the transmission of faith. And it goes from man to man to man to man. It goes from, from one generation to the next. And that's exactly what we see. Top of page three. Adam did a number of monumental things. If you look at what he did, he named the animals. He, he was the, the firstborn in, of all creation. Um, he, he actually was tilling the ground. He was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. And then he fell into sin. Uh, he listened to his wife. They both fell into sin. Um, Eve uh, took the fruit and ate it. She gave it to her husband who was with her. He ate as well. And sin entered the world. Romans 5.12 tells us that through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and all died because all sin. We all sinned in Adam. Every single one of us inherit the culpability of Adam. Every single one of us lose our original righteousness in Adam because of his fall. Every single one of us are born estranged from God because of Adam. And, and so that's, but, but the, the good news is uh, that there was repentance on the part of Adam and Eve. They embraced the promise of Genesis 3.15, and they transmitted the truth to their progeny. They passed along the truth to each of their children as, as time went along. And Adam had centuries with which to do that, multiple generations uh, with whom he could invest in his lineage. And the point is, the second paragraph, by way of application, this, this truth is, is, is evident for all of us. There, there's any number of things that we can do. What will matter at the end of our days will not be what we did in our careers. It will not be in, in our pedigree academically. It will not be in what kind of a house we lived in. It will not be what neighborhood we lived in, what our net worth was. Our legacy will not be in any of those transitional uh, temporary things that have no enduring quality whatsoever. Our legacy will be what have we done to transmit the truth of Christ and those that are closest to? How have we invested in the lives of other people? That's what Adam is doing, generation after generation after generation. He and his dear wife Eve uh, put the truth into their children. Obviously, Cain did not embrace it. And there's no, no promise, by the way, that just because we teach the truth that it will be assimilated in the lives of our children. But in Cain's case, that was not evident, or it was evident that he did not embrace it. But in Abel's case, he did. And obviously in Seth's life, Seth embraced the truth as well. So that's, that's really the, what matters most is our testimony for Christ and how we're investing the testimony of Christ in those who are closest to us in our lives. And, and most significant for those of us who are married and have families is how are we investing in our children. And that's why we do what we do in terms of, of catechizing our children. That's why we teach them. Uh, we, we want to raise them up in the, in, the, in the discipline and nurture of the Lord and entrust their eternal souls to the God who ultimately will save them. 
We don't know what God will do, but all we know is our responsibility is to patiently, conscientiously, faithfully, perseveringly teach, inculcate, instill, model, uh, all of those things, the truth of God in those who are closest to us in our families. And that's our legacy. But Genesis 5 starts with a reference back to Genesis 1. It actually references when God created Adam, man, he made him in the likeness of God. Verse 1, male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. And so we have the image of God in, in, in man, Adam and Eve, when they were created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Chapter 1, verse 25 and 26. The same language, by the way, uh, shows up in chapter 5. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. It's it's virtually the same language that you'll see back in chapter 1 of Genesis with the creation of Adam and Eve by God in his image after his likeness. And so this line that came through Adam uh, and it's chronicled for us in chapter 5. And here's where we see the future of God's redemptive plan in chapter 5. Uh, And it's a continuation of chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, with this line of Seth, is there was this transmission of truth and the the multiplication of faith as stewards under God, and the mandate that Adam had, and he fulfilled it in his life, and we are to fulfill it as well, is to perpetuate that, that calling, that truth, in the lives of his children. Well, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, makes three points with respect to what Adam did and the, the consequences of, of the, the, um, the lineage of Adam. The first is that each of Adam's offspring had the capacity to know and to walk with God, had the capacity. That doesn't mean that they would necessarily, but they had the capacity by God's grace, subject to his work of, of, of grace in their lives, to know and have communion with God. And that's, that's the, the image of God that, that is transmitted from generation to generation. The, the counterpart to that is not only did they have the capacity to know and to have communion with God, but they all inherited Adam's sin, Adam's sinful nature and his culpability before God. And that's why we read this litany of names. And, and well, after the names in chapter 5, you'll see, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And you'll see that this is the consequence of sin. Is through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. Not only spiritual death, but physical death as well. And chapter 5 chronicles the death of one generation after another. And it's all a result of the transmission of sin. So they're born with the, with the capacity to know and have communion with God, but they're also uh, burdened with the, the inherited culpability of Adam, the sin nature, the fallenness. And top of page 4, by the grace of God... When God chooses to take a child or an adult, whatever the case may be, and renew them uh, through the work of regeneration, uh, we, we see this line that is perpetuated through Seth. And so this is all the grace of God. This is all God fulfilling his purposes in the lives of individuals. Is he's taking them that are guilty before him, and he's doing a work of grace in their lives. And you see this in Seth's lineage, uh, Adam through Seth, and ultimately, at least in this chapter, through Noah. So the, the last, <clears throat> by way of application, if we're used by God to lead others in following Jesus, we will leave a spiritual legacy that, like Adam's, will endure even to eternity. So that's point number one. What really matters? What's our legacy? What will remain when we're gone? 
will be what did we do for Christ? And I'm reminded of the, the statement that, um, that one missionary once said, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And that's exactly right. It's only what's done for Christ that will endure. Well, the second point of four, we talked about the legacy. In this case, we're talking about the legacy of Adam. This is the godly line that's chronicled in chapter five. But the remnant of God, and, and this is God preserving a remnant. His plans are never frustrated. One could look at, at at least going through chapter four until you get to verse 25 and 26, and you could say, what an incredibly dismal story with Lamech and his children and, and the, the godless culture. And you'd be right. It is an incredibly dismal story. And there is no hope. There's no ray of, of optimism anywhere in the line of Cain. There's nothing of any enduring spiritual quality. It's devoid of, of God in, in all that's written until you get to verses 25 and 26. And then you see this radical change, another line. And God is indeed preserving his promises. He's preserving a remnant. John Calvin, it's, it's an inset paragraph. He writes that in that great prodigious multitude of men, there was always a number, though small, who worshiped God. That's what Genesis 4, verses 25 and 26 say. And the number was wonderfully preserved by celestial guardianship. In other words, God is maintaining this, 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 this lineage, this remnant, lest the name of God should be entirely obliterated and the seed of the church should fail. And you know this. It, it literally, it's, it's, our faith goes one generation at a time. The truth goes one generation at a time. And what a responsibility and a privilege and an opportunity we have to invest in those who are closest to us, whether it's our children or our siblings or, or those who are close to us, to have an impact uh, subject to the grace of God operating in their lives and transmitting that truth generation after generation. And you see this, this godly line contemporaneous with a completely evil line. Uh, they're, 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 they're happening at exactly the same time. The remnant is small, but it's faithful. But the significance is, is very important. You'll, you'll see names, for instance, in Genesis 5 that you won't find repeated necessarily, in, in a, and you won't know the significance of them. Names like Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared. And you can look and say, so what's the story with them? And the answer is they're chronicled because they were faithful, because they were in the line, because they stood for, for the Lord, because they worshiped God, because they were men through whom God ultimately transmitted the truth. Some of them, for instance, we'll look at Enoch, we'll look at Methuselah, we'll look at Lamech, we'll look at Noah. Those names receive a, a lot of, of narrative associated with them, and for very good reasons. And God is revealing to us exactly the impact that Enoch had, that Methuselah had, that Lamech had, and Noah had. And, and Noah, of course, will be continued in chapter 6. But that doesn't mean that these other names, like Kenan, Mahalalel, and Jared, aren't significant. They are. We just don't happen to know what happened in their lives. But the point is that every single one of them are important. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book many years ago called No Little People. And the, the thesis of the book was no one is insignificant in the outworking of the plan of God. If you, if you live for God and you, you're faithful to him, you, you're significant regardless of whether the world recognizes that, regardless of whether uh, you're chronicled by uh, the, the press, whatever the case may be. Most of us will never be in that world, praise God. Uh, but, but that doesn't mean that our lives are insignificant. Every life is significant as long as we're faithful to God. And so we've got these names. We don't know anything about them. 
Kenan, Mahalalel, and Jared, but God took the time through the inspiration of the Spirit, through the pen of Moses, you need to know these names because one gave birth to the next and ultimately they resulted in Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and, and Noah. No one's left out. It's interesting to see how blessed this godly line was. Look at the lifespans, they're, they're incredible. Adam lived 930 years. I mean, today, if you look at someone and they live over 100 and you look at them and you say, I'm not sure I want to live over 100. You know, I'm not sure, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to be that way. I, if something less than that's fine with me. But 930 years is, is, is a man full of years. Uh, Seth, 912 years. Methuselah, 969. He's, he's the one that, that wins the record for the longest lifespan, 969 years. By the way, that lifespan is extremely important, and we'll see that literally at the very end. So we, we've looked at the legacy through the life of Adam, a, a legacy of transmitting faith generation after generation, of standing for God, being faithful to him, uh, doing what we can to instill the truth in those who are closest to us, and praying for them faithfully, modeling the truth, transmitting it, being faithful to the Lord. And we've looked at the remnant, and, and now we're going to look at a third aspect in these the four observations in chapter 5, and it has to do with the life of Enoch. Enoch is a very notable figure. And what's interesting is that Enoch was the seventh figure in the line of, of Seth, seventh figure. If you were to go back and look at the line of Cain, you would see uh, that, uh, that that he was uh, well, I mean, yeah, that he walked with God in Genesis five twenty two. That, that's the point that I wanted to make was that he's the seventh in this line, but he walked with God. Uh, but what does it mean to walk with God? Um, we're, we're looking at this, and we know that that Enoch walked with God three hundred years after. He, gave, he and his wife gave birth to Methuselah. And at the end of 300 years, the Lord literally took him to himself. Enoch didn't die a, a normal death. He, took, he went immediately into the presence of God. But what does it mean when the scripture says that, that he walked with God? It, he walked in such a way that he was in communion with God. It does not mean that Enoch was sinless. We know that. We know that no one after Adam was sinless. But we know that he's singled out as a person with a notable communion with God. Um, it, it, we, we look at this. Matthew Henry summarizes uh, this, this inset paragraph. Uh, a walk with God is to set him before us, uh, to act as if we were always under his eye, uh, to make God's word our rule and his glory our end in all our actions. It is to make it our constant care and endeavor in everything to please God and in nothing to offend him. What's interesting is when Matthew Henry makes the comment that living with, in such a way that we realize that we're always before the eye of God, I'm reminded of an expression that R.C. Sproul would often use in his teaching. It's a Latin expression, corum deo. Maybe you've heard in some messages that he's given. It literally means before the face of God. Everything that we do, is before the face of God. When we obey God, it's always before his face. When we sin, it is always before the very face of God. We're always in the immediate presence of God. 
Enoch walked in such a way that he was not only, of course, immediately in the presence of God, but he conducted himself knowing that he was always in the presence of God, realizing that we live in God's immediate presence in our thought life, in our actions, in the company that we keep, in the company that we don't keep, in in all that we do. It's a reflection of whether we're taking seriously the fact that what I'm doing is right before God, the one to whom I will ultimately give an account. And Enoch walked in such a way, his communion with God was just stellar. It was, it was an amazing thing that for 300 years after the birth of Methuselah that he walked faithfully with God and God took him home. What, what's interesting, though, is that by way of application, is Enoch the only one that is capable of walking with God? No, of course not. Paul tells us in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's, that wasn't limited to Enoch. That's, that was written to the church at Ephesus and by implication to us as well. We're all called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. So what happened with Enoch is not limited to him. That doesn't mean that we'll be translated directly. It could if the rapture occurs. That would be uh, the means by which this would happen on a grand scale. But if we continue on and and we walk, ultimately, we will enjoy the same outcome that Enoch enjoyed. We'll be in the immediate presence of God if we're walking with him. And and so Enoch's um, walking with God did not earn him salvation. Uh, It was not anything that he merited through his own. Of course, we know that. But the fact that he knew the Lord in a faithful way was reflected in the way that he conducted his life. And that's that's the way it is with us. Our sanctification is not what saves us. Our justification is what saves us. Our justification is God forgiving our sins and and considering us righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. But the way that we manifest the fact that we're justified is in our day-to-day obedience, in our conformity to Christ. It's it's the way that day-to-day we grow in fellowship with God and show by the decisions that we make, the values that we hold, the conversations that we have, etc., that we're living in such a way that we're, going, we're committed to glorifying God and to enjoying Him uh, forever. So this is not a, 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 a characteristic that is unique to Enoch. It just happens that Enoch is singled out as someone that the Lord had a, an, an absolutely magnificent relationship with. So top of page um, 6. Michael Barrett makes this, uh, this comment about what does it mean to walk with God? Because here we have the testimony that Enoch walked with God and, and he did not die. God took him to be with himself. To walk with God is to live in friendship with him by daily trusting his promises, keeping his commandments. David Guzik has three observations. He says walking with God means walking by faith, 2 Corinthians 5.7, walking in the light, 1 John 1, 5 through 7, walking in agreement with God, Amos 3, 3. And then David makes a very uh, poignant comment. He says, after walking like this with God, it was as if one day God turned to Enoch and said, you don't need to walk home. Why don't you just come home with me? And that's exactly what happened. And he just took him right to himself. And he bypassed death. Hebrews 11 tells us what it was about the walk that Enoch had. By faith, the scripture says, he was taken away so that he did not see death. By faith. He lived by faith. The promises of God. 
He lived always looking to the promises of God, living in light of the promises of God, believing Him, trusting in Him, living for Him. Spurgeon says this, If men walk contrary to God, he will not walk with them, but contrary to them. Walking together implies amity, friendship, intimacy, love, and these cannot exist between God and the soul unless the man is acceptable to the Lord. And, and so, it, again, the, the application is, sure, we look at Enoch and what a remarkable figure he is, but he gives us an example that we should emulate, and, and we, should, we should admire that, that example. Here is a man that walked steadfastly for three centuries with God and ultimately enjoyed going home to be with him immediately. Top of page 7. What's interesting in, in this is also the faithfulness of God in the life of Enoch. I made mention earlier of the fact that Enoch was the seventh in the line of, of Seth. The seventh in the line of Seth. And if you trace it, Lamech was the seventh in the line of Cain. So these were men who very likely were contemporaries of each other. Did they know each other personally? I don't know. But they very likely they were living at least contemporaneously with each other. So you've got Enoch and you've got Lamech, the, the Lamech of, of Genesis chapter 4 of the line of Cain, living a, a life at, at essentially the same time. So they were contemporaries with one another. And, and so you have a godly line through Seth, and you have a worldly, secular, godless line of Cain living side by side. That's really what's happening today, isn't it? It, it is. I mean, you, you've got true believers living a life of obedience before God, and, and we're surrounded by a, essentially the, the seed of the serpent who's living all around us. It's not dissimilar from what we read in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5. And, and so we live contemporaneously with those who are godless, with those who are outside of Christ, and, and our responsibility is to live in a way that brings honor to God. So we've got two lines. One was advancing in culture. And if you look at the things that cha- in chapter 4, our world today would absolutely extol uh, what happened with Lamech's children. This is a different Lamech. The, the Lamech of chapter 4 is entirely different than the Lamech of chapter 5, so don't be confused by that. But you look at, at the Lamech's ch- uh, sons, and they pioneered agribusiness, uh, technology, um, a, a number of things that we look at this and we'd say they'd be on the Time magazine man of the year, man of the decade. But in God's eyes, they were outside of, 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 of his will. They, they were living in a way that was completely godless. So they may have had the applause of men, but they certainly didn't enjoy the favor of God. And that's the way it is today, that the things that this world applauds and cherishes are not necessarily the things that, that God would esteem as worthy. That doesn't mean that cultural advantages don't have benefits. They do, and, and sometimes they don't have advantages. Uh, but the real quality is... Where is God in this picture? Where is God in, in what we're doing? In the case of Cain, in his lineage, God was nowhere mentioned. As a matter of fact, you look at, the, at chapter 4, and, and God's name is not even mentioned until you get to verses 25 and 26. So you're looking at this in the godly line. This is the third paragraph down. You must have ima- imagined the, uh, the, the, the tension that they felt, the, the sorrow that they felt, the... Um, the, the, the heartache that they felt knowing what was going on around them as they saw the line of Cain living in a godless way and they were living by God's enablement in a way that brought honor to him. And so they're, they're contemporaries and, and you can only imagine how one line must have looked at the other. 
But we have in, the, in Enoch, if you will, uh, an encouragement uh, to the line of Seth that there is a life that really matters, that there is an outcome that matters for all eternity. And I'm choosing to use Enoch to show you that what really matters is walking with me and having communion with me. John Calvin makes this observation. He says, God designed to elevate the minds of his saints with certain faith before their death. He's referring to the encouragement that that God gave to the line of Seth. And to mitigate by this consolation the dread which they might entertain of death, seeing that they would know that a better life was elsewhere laid up for them. What Calvin's saying is that they looked at Enoch and they said, God really does honor obedience to him. God really does cherish and reward a life of communion with him. And I may not get translated directly to be with God as Enoch did, but I know that I have that as my future. I know that when I die, that I'm going to have exactly the same experience that that Enoch is enjoying right now. I'll be walking with communion with God in a perfect way. And so Enoch is an example of what lies in wait for the faithful. Number four. So we've looked at the legacy. We've looked at the remnant. We've looked at the life of, um, of Enoch. There's a very sobering aspect uh, toward the end of chapter 5, and it deals with a judgment to come. We've we've already mentioned uh, these other points, but turn over to to page 8. The final lesson that we draw from chapter 5 with the line of Seth in his genealogy deals with God's judgment on sin. You have a lineage that was living faithfully, generation after generation after generation. And they knew that God would judge sin. They knew what what happened to Cain. They they knew that he was expelled from the, the garden. They knew that he was cursed. They knew that God would judge sin. And they looked ahead to the Redeemer's coming. They they didn't have the the fullness of revelation that we have, but they knew that that one would come, the seed of of the woman would crush the head of the servant. And they, they lived in light of that promise. And, and so what we, there's an interesting feature when we come to Enoch. We just mentioned the fact that God took him home. If you go to the New Testament in the book of Jude, the little book of Jude, in verses 14 and 15, the same Enoch is referred to in the book of Jude. And the scripture, he has a prophecy in verses 14 and 15. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. The word ungodly, you see, goes over and over. Enoch was looking forward, although he didn't have clarity, as we do, of the second coming of Christ, but he's, he's ultimately prophesying the second coming of Christ. But there's a sense in which, in a more immediate way, I'm not saying there was a double fulfillment of Enoch's prophecy, but I'm saying that it's it's almost certain, and for reasons I'll explain in a moment, that Enoch was looking at something near-term, something imminent that God would judge the ungodly. How do I know that? Because when he gave birth to, or when he and his wife gave birth to Methuselah, the name Methuselah means when he is dead, it will come. Methuselah died the year of the flood. When, it, when he dies, it will come. When Enoch named his son Methuselah, he was looking to a time that, there, that something would come, something monumental would come. He was looking at 
what it meant for an ungodly line to live in coexistence with a godly line. He was looking at what, how God judges sin, how he disciplines those who are in sinful lives. And, and he said, God's judgment is, is, is going to come. The hammer's going to fall. And he named his son. When he dies, it's going to come. And David Guzik writes that it seems Enoch began to walk with God in a special way after the birth of Methuselah. And he says that because Enoch walked 300 years after the birth of Methuselah. Enoch lived in light of the fact that God would judge, that God was going to do something monumental. He didn't know exactly what it would be, but he knew that God was going to bring judgment. Ultimately, that fulfillment is in the second coming, but he also saw something imminent, and he named his son in that way. When he dies, it's coming. And, and so he lived 300 years in light of judgment, and he lived 300 years proclaiming in his culture that judgment's coming. There's an example there to follow. He, he had an awareness uh, that judgment was, was going to come. Look at the um, fourth paragraph down. And all the, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. The, the life of Methuselah was not an accident, of course. God preserved his life so that he lived the longest life recorded in Scripture so that there would be an opportunity for men and women to repent. Because when Methuselah died, the flood came and wiped out all of humanity except for Noah and his family. Exactly in fulfillment of Enoch's naming his son, when he, when he dies, it will come. And that's exactly what took place. When Methuselah died, very shortly thereafter, you have the flood. And, and so Enoch was living in light of that. If you look down uh, toward the bottom of the page, as we're putting all this together, if we add together the fact that, number one, Enoch preached a coming judgment on sin. You see that in Jude 14 and 15. That his son's name may and almost certainly did indicate a judgment coming from God. And that, and that Methuselah actually died just before the flood. That Enoch was concerned that people would anticipate a coming judgment of, of God on the sins of the world. What's interesting is that Methuselah gave birth to Lamech. It's a different Lamech than Genesis 4, different name altogether. And Lamech was grieving over the effects of sin. He, he grew up in light of Enoch's prophecy. He grew up in light of um, Methuselah's name. He saw what was happening, and, and so he named his son Noah. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed... This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Do you see what he, what he said is exactly true? That, that, that when he named Noah, that there would be two aspects to what would happen in the life of Noah. Number one, there would be judgment. That's what Methuselah's name actually looks forward to. And number two, that there would be rest and restoration, that there would be peace. Noah actually sounds like rest or relief. So you got Methuselah's name when he dies, it will come. And when you have Noah, meaning rest or relief. And so Lamech named his son in view of a coming redemption and come in, in, in terms of a coming cleansing of the world, in terms of deliverance, top of page 10. Second paragraph. What's interesting is that Lamech foresaw the great judgment of God in Noah's flood also was a great redemption. He saw it as judgment, and he saw it as redemption. And that's exactly what took place. You have Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and the family, and they escaped. 
and Noah's family passed through the judgment into a cleansed world. All of evil humanity was literally exterminated in the flood. So Enoch named his son Methuselah. When when he dies, it will come. Methuselah gave birth to Lamech. Lamech is looking at uh, his father's name and, and the world that was around him. And he named his son Noah rest and, and restoration. And so we've, they're looking forward to a time when God would indeed judge. And he did indeed judge. That when, again, when Methuselah died, the flood came at the end of his 960-something years. So the application for all of us. We are living in a way that's not dissimilar from the men of Genesis 5. We're living a life of, of godliness in the midst of a, an ungodly culture. We're living, there's two lines of humanity, just like there was a line of Seth and a line of Cain. We, we are living evidence of, of God's grace in our lives, and we're contemporaneous with a godless culture all around us. And for us, Jesus, of course, is like Noah, the ark that bears us from judgment, that delivers us from judgment. And so, just like there was this proclamation of Enoch that's recorded for us in Jude 14 and 15. A time of judgment is coming. A time of judgment is coming. God will send, and there will be a time of great accounting. The, the obligation for us is to live in such a way that we are honoring him, that we're walking just like Enoch did, walking with God in communion with him. And like Adam did in his, his progeny, transmitting the truth generation to generation faithfully. That's the only legacy that matters. And, and, and declaring, just like Enoch did to our contemporaries, you need to know that a time of judgment is coming. And that's, that, so you look at Genesis 5 and, and these messages come through. It's a genealogy, but once you unpack it, you see exactly the message that God is giving. The legacy that counts is, is a legacy of faithfulness. Judgment is coming. Live in light of judgment. Proclaim the good news. Proclaim the coming judgment. And that's how we essentially live today like the line of South. In, in a way where we will be honoring the purposes of God.